Any of y'all remember that public service announcement from the 1980s? Anybody remember the 80s? Anybody? Okay, yeah. Nancy Reagan, right? Uh, the wife of the president, first lady, had this Just Say No campaign, and they spent a lot of money telling kids, just say no to drugs. There were Just Say No t-shirts. There were Just Say No bumper stickers. Just Say No pendants, you know? And we were always telling, as a young person, I grew up as a, a teenager in the 80s, and I was being told to say, just say no. And so they started showing this public service announcement, this little commercial, and I got to be honest with you, my friends and I kind of laughed because we thought, whose parents do drugs? I, I didn't know anybody's parents who did drugs. I just thought that was kind of silly. But, but there's some truth to that, that if parents do drugs, well, then most likely the children are going to do drugs. As I look back at this public service announcement decades later, I can see that there's really a lot of truth to this idea, this understanding of generational sin. Now, it's true, I didn't know any uh, parents who did drugs, but I, I did have some friends whose parents, they, well, they drank a lot and and the fact is that when their kids got a little bit older, they, their kids drank a lot. A lot of underage drinking was going on because that's what they saw in their home. I didn't have any uh, parents or I didn't know any friends whose parents uh, did drugs, but I did have some friends whose parents had pornography in the house. And when those kids got a little bit older, they got involved with you know, some uh, sexual experiences that were, they're way too young for, not ready for that responsibility. I didn't know any parents, I didn't know any friends whose parents did drugs, but I did have several friends whose parents, well, they rarely ever brought their children to church, even though I knew they went to our church. They were members of our church, but we rarely ever saw them. And now that their children are grown and they're my age, they never go to church. There's something about that announcement, something about the generational sin that we inherit these this, this sin, this sinful nature, we, we see it with our very first parents, right? With Adam and Eve, every family's got some form of generational sin because, we, well, we've inherited a sinful nature. Beginning with Adam and Eve, our first parents, who, who ate the forbidden fruit, who committed that original sin of, of trying to be like God in their pride, they wanted to be like God. And well, ever since then, humanity's been wrestling with sin. We, we inherit a sinful nature that left our own is, is prone to wander from God. We are prone to, to stray from God. Yes, we have generational sin, but I don't like it. I like to think that everybody's held accountable for their own sin. And yet Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments that Mike just read, has always challenged me, specifically verses 5 and 6. Let me read that again. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, speaking of idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I love the idea that God, you know, shows love, steadfast love to thousands of those who keep his commandments. But I've always wrestled with this idea that, well, that God's going to visit iniquity on the fathers, on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Why to the third and the fourth generations? Why not just let everyone be held accountable for their own sin? What is this about this generational sin that that the children are going to have to suffer for their parents' sin? Well, fortunately, that's not all the Bible has to say about sin. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, we read this. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So Deuteronomy lets us know that, you know, we're going to be held accountable for our own sin. I'm not going to be put to death because of my father's sin, and my father's not going to be put to death because of of my sin. But if we look back at Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6, we have to recognize there's something to this 
generational sin. After all, what was it the sin that God was most upset with in the Old Testament? What is this commandment against exactly? It's idolatry. Having idols. You know, if you grew up in a home where or making money and acquiring stuff was viewed as the, the highest value, the chances are you're probably going to wrestle with the, the, idol, the idol of money. Or if you grew up in a home where you know, athletic achievement or uh, academic achievement or was a way of measuring one's worth, well then we may wrestle with the idol of achievement or success. That was certainly the generational sin that was in my own home growing up. If you grew up in a home where social acceptance and popularity was viewed as a a principal value, then we will probably worship the idol of popularity. We'll spend our lives trying to please other people, to be liked by as many people as possible. Those are three of the principal idols of our culture today, isn't it? Money, success, popularity. There's nothing wrong with money. Oh, believe me, there's a lot of wealthy people in the Bible. King David was a very wealthy man, and, and, and King David used his money to help build the temple for the people of Israel. And of course, he wasn't able to do it, but he pro- provided all that would be needed so his son Solomon could, could, fin- could finish the work. And of course, Solomon gave of his own resources as well. King David and King Solomon were very wealthy men who did great work for, for God's kingdom, using the resources God had given them to help further the work of God's kingdom so that people might worship God. Yes, money is neutral. There, there's not anything bad about money. But if we pursue money more than God, well, then it becomes an idol for us. If we allow money to define us rather than our relationship with God, we've allowed it to become an idol. Nothing wrong with money. Money can be used for great things. But we have to be careful not to let it become an idol. Nothing wrong with being popular either. Jesus was very popular. Everybody liked Jesus. When people wanted to be near Jesus, in fact, his disciples, the earliest church, they were very popular people because they were so loving and generous and everyone wanted to be a part of that loving and generous community. But we shouldn't follow Jesus simply because well, that's what's expected of us or we hope that people might like us if we come off as, as more of a follower of Christ because the truth is not everybody liked Jesus. Remember, they crucified Jesus. Ten of his twelve disciples were later killed for their faith as well. There's nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with being popular. Nothing wrong with being successful. As I read Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, I believe God wants us to take the time and the talents and the treasures that we've been given. And he wants us to use those, to, to maximize those, to do the most we can with what God has given to us. And sometimes when we do our best, it does lead to success. It leads to accolades. It leads to awards. The key is to make sure that we're not pursuing those awards more than we're pursuing God. Yes, idolatry is, is the sin of, of putting anything before God, making a good thing, a neutral thing, an ultimate thing, allowing it to define us rather than God. Nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with popularity, nothing wrong with success. The key is that we always use those things to point others to Jesus. You know, this January, our own Lulu Cowan, who's sitting in the back row there, second to back row, like a good, uh, I think she was raised Baptist, right? Back row Baptist. Anyway, uh, she's Presbyterian now, though. She was predestined to be here, so we're glad she's here. <laughs> but uh, Lulu was uh, voted, you know, woman of the year. And the year before that, our own Chuck Alexander was man of the year, the year before that. And we've had several uh, members of our church, uh, Claudette Landis, of course, Tom Cambridge. We've had a lot of people who've been man or woman of the year, Peter Lou Dawkins. It's been great. And as you read the bios of our members who have been given this wonderful award, they all mention our church. They want to make sure that people know that their willingness to volunteer and serve our community is not because of, of anything that they are, but really they want, it's because of their faith. It's driven by their faith in Jesus. 
Awards and accolades are great, but the key is that we make use of those to help point others to Jesus. In fact, I love Lulu's video that was done for her. They made this wonderful video of her. And the very last shot was of her sitting in this sanctuary, and you could see our stained glass window, helping us know that what, all that she's done has been done to the glory of God. And there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with being popular. There's nothing wrong with being successful. And in, fact, in fact, I hope everyone here is, is rich, wealthy, and successful, very popular, so we can use what God gives us to help further the work of his kingdom. But the challenge is, is that sometimes we can pursue this stuff, these good things, and make them ultimate things. We can, we can fall prey to the sins of the generations that have gone before us. How can we make sure that we break generational sin? How can we make sure that we see things in their proper perspective? That we have eyes to see what God wants us to see. To find out, open your Red Pew Bibles to the Gospel of John as we look at the sixth sign of Jesus, John chapter 9, verses 1 to 38. I would encourage you to keep your Red Pew Bible open throughout the message because I will be making reference to it throughout the, the, the message this morning. John chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, may be found on page 1139 of your Red Pew Bible. But before I read God's word, let's call upon His Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as we pray. God, we thank you that you're the God who still speaks to us as we read your word. God, I pray that as we read your word this morning, you would give us eyes to see, just as you gave this blind man eyes to see. Help us to see who Jesus really is. Help us to see who Jesus is calling us to be. Help us to be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. John chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. As he passed by, Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed. And came back seen. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were, you, were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and Receive my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? 
and there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want me to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and Having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is I who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet prophet Isaiah tells us, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now notice Jesus is the one who notices this man who was born blind. We saw in John chapter 5 that Jesus is drawn to those who have great needs. He was drawn to the man who was at the pool of Bethesda, who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Yes, Jesus sees this man who was born blind, and he is drawn to this man. He wants to help this man. But notice the ridiculous question that the disciples ask Jesus. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I can just imagine that this blind man, who can't see but who can hear probably pretty well, probably heard the disciples ask Jesus that question. What an insensitive, cruel Foolish question to ask. I mean, after all, these Jews should know from the book of Job, the story of Job, that sometimes bad things happen to good people. It's not because of any sin we have committed. Of course, we do know that our choices have consequences. If we're promiscuous and we get an STD of some kind, that is because of our choices. Our choices do have consequences. But this man was born blind. How could he have done anything to to cause his own blindness while he was in the womb of his mother? Uh, What a horrible question for this man to ask Jesus. 
Notice how quick Jesus is to correct their bad theology. They believe that it's either the son's, uh, it's either the, the man's fault or the parent's fault. And Jesus gives them a third option in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus quickly corrects their bad theology and says, look, it wasn't this man's sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be blind, but rather so the works of God might be done and through him so that ultimately God might be glorified. Now, that sounds great. But I imagine for that blind man, he would have rather just been born with sight and not have to be an example that God would use to, to bring glory to him. But I don't also imagine that we'd be talking about him in John chapter 9. He wouldn't have an entire chapter of John's gospel dedicated to him if he hadn't, in fact, been born blind. Yes, God has a way of taking the broken things of this world and and making them whole so that he might receive all the glory. It was interesting. uh, This past Wednesday, I had my esophagus scope because I've had some trouble swallowing and I have to put you out for that. And so uh, Dr. Uh, uh, daughter uh, put the uh, scope through and I was out and I came out of my anesthesia and I, I don't remember this but my wife tells me that when I saw the nurse I quickly asked her said hey do you have a church home <laughs> we got three services 830 gospel 11 traditional 1105 contemporary hey here's my card and I gave her a card and my wife's laughing after the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks I guess under the influence of drugs but because I was so drugged up, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't drive, and so I decided to sit home, obviously, and, and I watched a, a documentary on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who was a leader of the Confessing Church in Germany that spoke openly against Hitler and his Nazi regime, specifically what Hitler was doing to the Jews. Eventually, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was tied to an assassination attempt, and so he was imprisoned, and, and sadly and tragically, he was killed two weeks before the Americans liberated the camp where he was staying. It was interesting, this German theologian in the documentary quoted some of Bonhoeffer's writings about his own death. Bonhoeffer wrote this, Hitler cannot kill me. The hour of my death will be prescribed by the living God himself. This German theologian pointed out that if, well, that if Bonhoeffer had survived World War II, we probably wouldn't talk about him the way that we do. But because he was a martyr for the church, a martyr for the Christian faith, a martyr, an example of what it means to stand up to tyranny as a Christian, we talk about him. And and in my seminary, we we read his books like Costs of Discipleship and Life Together. Yes, he was given much more greater notoriety as a martyr than he would have been if he had simply survived Nazi Germany. See, we wouldn't be talking about this man who was born blind if, in fact, he hadn't been born blind in John chapter 9. While this man's blindness is tragic, it proves only to be temporal. Jesus has a bigger plan. And notice the progression of faith that this man has. Look again at verse 11 in our text. After being healed, he begins to share with his Jewish neighbors what has happened. And he says, he, says, he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now, Jesus, that name in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. The man, whose name means Yahweh saves, put mud on my eyes and told me to wash. 
Notice in verse 11, he calls him a man, but later he's pressed by the Pharisees to tell the story again. And so as he continues to give his testimony, his faith is strengthened, and he's encouraged to be even more bold, despite the fact that he knows he may be kicked out of the synagogue. And in verse 17, the man says, So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. As this man continues to tell the story of how Jesus has healed him, he goes by describing Jesus as a man to now Jesus is a prophet. This statement gets him kicked out of the synagogue. But this man's faith remains strong because he knows that all he knows about Jesus is that once he was blind, but now he can see. Then Jesus sees him, knowing that he's been kicked out of the synagogue. And as we read in verse 35 of our text, it says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus, this, This blind man goes from seeing Jesus as a man to a prophet to the Son of Man, our Lord and Savior. How was he able to take this journey of faith exactly? We have to go back to verses 6 and 7 to see that. Let's look again at verses 6 and 7 of our text this morning. After Jesus speaks, it says, Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Now the first thing we have to notice here is that Jesus does not wait until the man has any faith to heal him. Jesus is not relying on this man's faith to heal him. Jesus sees this man. He wants to heal him. But this man does have a a role to play. He he responds to the request of Jesus. He he simply does what Jesus asked him to do. He goes to the pool of Siloam. By hearing Jesus' words and doing what Jesus says, his faith begins to grow. His eyes begin to be opened to who Jesus really is. Is if we want to grow in our faith, we need to do what this man did. We simply need to do what Jesus said, like Mary told the servants at the wedding in Canaan and Galilee that we read about in, in John chapter 2. He said, whatever, whatever he tells you, talking about Jesus, her son, whatever he tells you, do it. So we need to take the words of Jesus and we just need to do what Jesus tells us to do. And then as we begin to do what Jesus tells us to do, our eyes will be open and we need to, like this man, we need to share what God is showing us with others so that our faith might grow as well. For notice that John makes the point to tell us that this pool called Siloam in Hebrew, which means scent. Now, the, the Gospel of John was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word for scent there is apostello. Apostello. We get the English word apostle from apostello. The apostles were the ones who were sent with the good news of the Gospel. This man is sent to the pool named Siloam, which means apostello, one who is, which means sent, And now he is sent to tell the good news of how once he was blind, but now he can see. And as he begins to tell this story over and over again, his life is transformed. His faith is strengthened, and he begins to see who Jesus really is, and so he worships him. If we want to grow in our faith, if we want to break the bond of generational sin, we need to do, by power of the Holy Spirit, we need to do what Jesus tells us to do. And then we need to tell others about how God is making a difference in our lives. You know, early in high school, I had a youth pastor. And I know some of you may be thinking, gosh, well, I I don't have a great testimony to tell. I don't have a great story. Well, I would say, go get one. 
And here's what I mean by that. When I was in high school, um, you know, I had a youth director who taught us the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, seek first your his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And I've got to be honest with you, as a freshman and a sophomore in high school, I was not seeking first the kingdom of God. I was seeking uh, girls, basketball, you know, notoriety, popularity. Those are the things I was seeking. But then in my junior year, I got demoted after a back injury from varsity down to JV and I was no longer even starting on junior varsity. And, and basketball had been such a big part of my identity. I identified myself as a basketball player and success in the basketball court was the primary thing that I was pursuing in my life. And as I was humbled, I began to, to listen more and think more about what Jesus said about seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So I began to surrender my life to Jesus. I said, Lord, if you want me to play basketball, let me know. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. I want to live for you. Well, providentially, I, I got over that back injury and actually started playing a lot better as I surrendered my life to Christ. Eventually, I was even recruited to play basketball in college. After college, I took a job with Price Waterhouse uh, Coopers. It was one of the largest accounting firms in the country, it's in the world now. Uh, and, and I was placed on a project that w- required a lot of hours, a lot of overtime. We worked late nights, most nights, and often on Saturdays. And at the end of my first year of working for Price Waterhouse, I was told that as a level one consultant, I was in the top 2% of billable hours. That's really not a, an award you want to win. I mean, that says you're working too hard. But anyway, I got it promoted and I got a raise and I got bonus and I had a lot more money than I ever had before, and yet I was miserable. I was blind, but I was beginning to see there was more to this life than just money. So I began to volunteer with my church at the time and lead a Bible study with a bunch of college students. If you don't have a testimony, go get one. In college and right after college, I had an opportunity to go on several mission trips to Mexico. Uh, first time we went to Monterrey, Mexico, and then eventually we went to Cancun, Mexico, Peace Day, Mexico specifically, then Merida, Mexico, and I even lived in Moralia, Mexico. If there's a culture that I understand better than, Amer- as well, as, not quite as well, but there's a culture I understand uh, next to American culture. It's Mexican culture. I've, I've lived in Mexico. I, my wife's from San Antonio. I went to school in San Antonio. I, I understand and I appreciate that culture a great deal. And I knew that Mexico had problems, but I didn't really understand the depth of the problems of Mexico until I went to, well, in 2004, as the college minister, I took a, a, a group of Rice students to do a mission trip in Reynosa, Mexico, a border town. We found ourselves along the Rio Grande in a shanty town where there was no running water and you had that smell of sewage smell of human excrement in the air. Kids were playing in this mud and all kinds of dirty and wrestling with all kinds of illnesses. And then I began to see why, why these Mexicans obviously want to be in America because they can just look across the river and see how much better we live. I was blind, but now I see. You know, when we begin to take the words of Jesus seriously, and, and really there's two commandments Jesus gives us. If you just do these two things, you're you're doing great. It's to love God and love your neighbor. As we begin to really love our neighbor well, then we begin to see the needs of our neighbor and we realize how God is calling us to, to act, to live out our faith, to do what Jesus calls us to do, to treat others the way we would like to be treated if we were them, to love them unconditionally and sacrificially. And the mission statement of our church is to discover and live the way of Christ and the expansive grace of God. That's a great mission statement. But the way of Christ is the way of suffering. It's the way of sacrifice. God is calling us to sacrifice. If you don't have a testimony, go get one by serving somebody else. Then you'll have a story to tell. 
You see, when I was a consultant working for Price Waterhouse, I spent most of my vacation time going on mission trips, whether it be to Cuba or Mexico or, or even uh, we went to Mississippi one time to help too. And we're doing all this great mission trip and it was a lot of fun. But you know, when I'd come back from my vacations, my coworkers would say, hey, how was your trip? And then I had a story to tell. A story about how God had used our team to help make the difference in the life of a lot of young people. A story of how God had used us to help build a a medical facility or how God had used us to help build a a center, a family life center. Or how God had used us to do door-to-door evangelism to bring over 100 people to faith in Christ in Cuba as we distributed Bibles in this communist country where evangelism is illegal. If you don't have a testimony, go get one. Go serve. See how God can use your service to point others to him. You see, this man who was born blind, he, he does something simple. He, he goes to the, the pool to wash, and then as he washes, he's able to see. And as he's able to see, he tells everybody, Jesus, this man, this prophet, this son of man gave me sight, and he is Lord. As we will do what Jesus calls us to do, we too will have a story to tell. A story to tell the nations of this God who loves us so much that he gave us. His one and only Son, Jesus, who was without sin, to pay the price for our sins with his death on a cross. Then on the third day, he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf, so that we might have new life if we simply believe in him. Yes, the good news of the gospel is that we have a God who is always with us, and he's equipped us and empowered us by his Holy Spirit to go do the work of his kingdom. If we will simply do what Jesus says, then we'll have a testimony, a story to tell, and we'll be able to see how our God is at work in our world today. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you that you're the God who still does miracles. You call us to do the work of your kingdom and you empower us by your spirit and that as we serve, we see your hand at work. Oh God, I pray that by your spirit you continue to call us and continue to empower us and help us to be bold, a bold witness of your great love to a broken and hurting world today. Lord, I lift up the team that's about to go to Corpus Christi in March as a part of a spring break intergenerational trip. I would encourage anybody who wants to join us to come join us in Corpus Christi as we help the communities around Corpus Christi rebuild after Hurricane Harvey. God, we pray that all of us would put our faith into action so that we might have a testimony. We might have a story to tell of how you used us to make a difference in the life of another. God, we thank you for your great love. Help us to walk by your spirit so that we might see all that you're doing today. Your sons, let me pray and all God's people said.